You're listening to episode 55 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. It's 31st of July 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm Simon Jones and I'm joined by Stephanie McKenna. Hello. Today we have our chief exec Chris Gribble talking with Jeremy Chang, New York-based writer and translator who is the inaugural literary translator of the fair at London Book Fair earlier this year. So before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about some events that are coming up. So coming up sooner rather than later on August the 10th is a special event in Edinburgh, which, Steph, I believe you're going to be at. Yes, so I'm very excited to return to Edinburgh, this time on a work trip. Um, on Saturday 10th of August, we have a very special event with Val McDermid as part of our International Literature Showcase. This is our second showcase. Um, some listeners might remember we had our first showcase with Alicia Fack at London Book Fair earlier in the year. So Val will be with us uh, between 3 and 4pm at the National Library of Scotland to talk about her selection of the most compelling LGBTQI plus writers working in the UK today. So this is a partnership with uh, British Council and with support from Arts Council England and Creative Scotland. Val will be in conversation with three of her chosen writers who have not been revealed yet, so it will be a nice surprise. And on the 10th, yeah. that will be the big unveiling of Val's list, which is very exciting. It, it is will. a really cool list, so we're looking forward to we revealing have had a, that. Yeah, we've had a sneak peek of it, and it's yeah, it's a really, really great list. It's really interesting. There's lots of writers on there that some I've heard of, some I've never heard of, and I'm really interested to, to have a read of them now. And for those who can't make the event, it is a free event, I should add. Yeah, if you happen so, to be in Edinburgh. If you happen to be in Scotland around that time please do come along and join us there are a few tickets left it's a completely free event but if you can't be there we will be streaming the event live on the Writers' Centre Twitter account so tune in 3pm on Saturday 10th of August and you can find uh, the writers being revealed before your very eyes. We've also got a podcast coming up that same week uh, in which Val is talking with journalist Sean Kane about the list so yeah lots of very exciting stuff coming up around this. Mm-hmm. So soon after Edinburgh, there's then the Prima Donna Festival, which is not something that we're putting on, but we're very excited about it. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. It's the it's the month of festivals, and this is a new and inclusive festival that we're very much looking forward to attending and supporting. Um, Prima Donna Festivals, based in Suffolk, it's a new festival of writing um, and creative writing uh, for people of all ages and it celebrates the creative community, it gives prominence to work by women and it's introducing fresh voices alongside famous faces in a fun and welcoming environment. So this is running from the 30th of August until the 1st of September um, and it features a whole huge lineup of extremely, extremely talented people um, including uh, Alif Shafak, Kit Dewal, Kerry Hudson, Michael Doncourt, Louise Doughty, Pretty Teneja, Luke Jennings, Sinead Gleeson and many, many others. So myself and our colleague Laura are going to go along for the weekend um, and just, you know, have a mingle, check out some events, see what fun bits and bobs they've got going on. And we're just really keen to support this because it sounds like such an excellent idea and it's pretty much on our doorstep. So it would just be a really nice way to close out the summer. Yeah, it's the first year they've done it and yeah, looking forward to it. I mean, we're not directly connected, so it's not a plug as such. No, it's, it's more, not. It's, it's We just like the look of it. Absolutely. It's something that we ourselves are just very keen to go to. And we have got some other colleagues who have bought their weekend tickets and will be camping come rain or shine. So hopefully we'll see some of you there. Yeah, we'll talk more about it uh, in a future episode once mm-hmm. once it's been and gone. Uh, other things on the horizon, we have the Noirage 
Crime Writing Festival coming up mid-September. All the tickets are available, brochures are all over town, so do check that out. There's lots of very exciting stuff coming up. And last episode on the podcast, if you missed it, we had Henry Sutton, who's the co-director of the festival, talking about the lineup and what to look forward to. And we've also just announced our next semester of Creative Writing Online courses, uh, organised in partnership with the University of East Anglia and their prestigious Creative Writing School. These begin in September. Um, we've got lots of beginner courses, uh, including fiction, script writing, poetry, uh, crime fiction, and we've got an intermediate course as well in writing fiction. Yes, and there's an early bird discount which runs through this coming weekend. So if you've listened to the podcast on release, there's still a chance to get a bit of a discount on the courses. Uh, places do tend to fill up on these courses and people seem to really like them. So if you're Absolutely. looking to increase your writing skills and want to do it online, then that is a good way to go. So back to today's interview with Jeremy Chang. We've timed this episode to coincide with the release of issue 53 of In Other Words, the literary translation journal. You can find out more about that on our website. As well as being in town for London Book Fair earlier in the year, Jeremy was actually here at Dragon Hall just a couple of weeks ago, staying in our lovely cottage along with Anton Herr. We'll have a separate conversation between them and our associate programme director, Kate Griffin, actually coming up on the podcast later in the year. But for now, here is Chris interviewing Jeremy on a panel in the Literary Translation Centre at LBF. And it's my genuine honour and pleasure to introduce today Jeremy Tiang, who is the inaugural London Book Fair Translator of the Fair um, for 2019. Uh, it is a brand new uh, role this year, and Jeremy, whose face you will have seen on a large banner as you enter um, Olympia, is the uh, first holder of the role. Jeremy um, is a translator uh, from the Chinese. He's a translator of novels, poetry, plays, and non-fiction. Uh, uh, Zhang Yuren, Chan Hokai, um, Su Wei Chan are authors who he has translated, um, amongst many others. He has been awarded uh, fellowships and grants from the Penheim Translation Fund, from the NEA, from the Henry Luce Foundation, and he also won the People's Literature Prize of Mao Tai Cup for Translation. Um, I think that's correct from your yes. biography. Um, he also very recently was a recipient um, of the uh, English Pen Translators Translation Awards for Yang Ge's um, Strange Beasts of China, which will be forthcoming from Tilted Axis Press in 2020, um, which should be really exciting to see that come through. So first of all, it's a pleasure to welcome Jeremy here today. We have um, a shortish period of time to talk to Jeremy about his work, about his um, kind of career, about his practice as a translator. He's also um, a, novelist, a novelist and short story writer as well as a translator and a playwright too. He's a man of many talents. He kind of um, in some ways embodies the kind of the um, multi-talented, multitasking role of the translator that is emerging in the, in the contemporary market. And so in that way, it's very fitting that he is the inaugural translator of the fair. Um, Jeremy, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Hi, everyone. I wanted to um, just, first of all, open the conversation by asking you how you came to translation as a, uh, in professional terms and kind of where you are uh, in your professional career at the moment. Where I am at the moment? <laughs> um, in a state of flux, I think. Um, 
I find it hard to answer this question because there are some people who have a very orderly progression into translation. They decide they love a language or love languages, study that language, and then um, start translating. Um, and some of us have fairly chaotic lives and sort of live in lots of places and pick up bits and pieces and eventually realize that translation is a way to bridge all the different bits of ourselves and make sense of who we are. And that's kind of how I fell into it. Um, I've done a lot of different things. Um, and the progression, more or less, is um, went to drama school, became an actor, did not do well as an actor, started writing plays, started writing fiction, because someone told me that the hardest thing about writing fiction was dialogue, and I thought, I'm a playwright, I can do that. And then realized that as a writer who is bilingual, I could translate, started doing that. That went rather well. And um, an agent, not my agent, another agent, gave me a piece of advice, which was always get on the horse that's running. <laughs> so, um, because the translation was the bit that was going the best of all the different things I was doing. I started doing more of it. And it became this virtuous circle where now that's pretty much most of what I do. I still do my own writing, but 90% of my time is spent translating. Um, and here we are. Kind of, if we're sticking with the horse metaphor for the moment, um, it's kind of sometimes hard to identify the horses that you're about to jump on and how fast they're going to run. When did, you, when did you start feeling comfortable with translation as a primary career for you? I think it was when I, I realized that I could stop worrying about getting work in that I now know what my next two books are going to be. And that's been the case for quite a while. I've generally known what my next one or two projects are. I think when you're at that point and you have a sense that the work will keep coming and you can keep generating an income for yourself, um, you sort of allow yourself to take a breath and go, okay. I'm doing this, this is happening, it's real, it's not a fluke, or like I've learned to fake it well enough. Um, like the, the thing with imposter syndrome is that you don't really get over it, you just decide that you've learned to hide well enough and you'll never be found out. Um, yeah, it, it, I guess it's stability. It, it's the sense that this can keep going, that it's sustainable. And that's been me for the last maybe three or four years, not that long, um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, kind of one of the things that I'm learning uh, increasingly about the literary translation as a professional activity is that it's not one single professional activity, it's many overlapping sorts of activity that kind of build into a, a career or, or a, a kind of a period of work <laughs> as, a, yes. as a professional translator. Is that what you found in, in your activity? Yes, it, it's, this, it's a collage. Um, it's lots of different bits because you can't just do one thing. I think in the popular imagination, um, you're sort of sitting at your desk at home translating away and now and then the phone rings and it's someone offering you more translation work. Um, that never happens. <laughs> it's, um, for me, it's about 50% um, work that comes to me, um, usually via translators or agents um, or foreign language trans um, publishers um, and work that I actively pitch. So I also spend a lot of time reading books in Chinese and trying to find projects that I want to work on, find books that I want to introduce to publishers um, and sort of getting out there. And the, the slog of figuring out the rights, doing the sample and the, the um, report, which you're doing off your own bat because no one's paying for that. 
um, and then knocking on doors, getting to know the publishing scenes so that you put it in front of the right people, making relationships so that people trust your taste and believe you when you say this is right for you. Um, the whole package, and then in the spare time between that, actually translating the books. Are there, are there sort of separate parts of your translator's brain that kind of identify books and projects that you'd love to do out of personal interest, but you think would never find a publisher? Then you see commercial um, books out there, you think, yes, I know someone who would pay me a large amount of money to do that really quickly. Do you, do you turn off and on those parts of your brain? I don't know. Well, I don't think there are books that will never find a publisher, um, partly because there are so many presses out there and so many readers. I really do think that there is a right place for every book. And if I feel that passionately about it, then so will other people. And it really is just finding the right circumstances and the right way to make it happen. Um, so I don't really divide it up that way. And I I don't think in terms of this will sell, partly because I'm really bad at that. I'm really bad at predicting what is commercial and isn't. So I just go by my personal taste and what I love and, and what resonates with me. Um, and that's what I choose to bring into the world. And um, you are part of Sedilla, which is a sort of a, a cooperative or a collective um, yes, kind um, of a grouping of translators. Could you tell us a little bit about the rationale for that formation and what you do together? Um, yes, Sedilla, so the initial idea came from Sean Bai, who is sitting over there, and um, Julia Sanchez. Um, Sean had spent a lot of time in London. Um, I've got a mic and he doesn't. I can control the narrative. Um, and um, when I was in London before, I'd, um, I was an actor. Um, I was, you know, I was mostly in Burger King commercials and corporate videos, but um, I didn't have an a single agent, but I was part of an, a cooperative agency, which is when a group of actors get together and represent each other. So when Sean and Julia um, suggested to me that they were setting this up, I said, oh, it's like an actor's cooperative, and um, I have experience of that. Um, and the idea is that translators are often very isolated. We don't have agents. We mostly work at home. Um, we don't see daylight. And it's, it initially started as a professional thing, that we could pool our knowledge, our contacts, our resources, we could support each other. But I think as well as that, what it's become is a type of community. We've become stronger because we are together. Um, and we support each other, not just professionally, but also um, as part of the collective, as part of the same community. And we all feel stronger as a result. So I think it, it's an interesting description on the Sedilla um, website um, that it's not just creating new translations, it's also about you, you identify potential translators for projects, you offer market intelligence, you make connections, you, you, you provide a network uh, for literature travelling effectively. Well, that tends to happen anyway, um, in that when you have a meeting with um, publishers, quite often they will ask you for information about the translation scene because we tend to, between us, know much more than um, they do. So we know who's working on what, um, who are the voices to look out for, um, have you considered doing this or talking to these people? Um, so this is a way of not really formalizing it because it's not like we've monetized it or anything, but um, 
creating a single location where publishers can come to us and people do find our website and talk to us that way, um, where the information is available and we have the information or we can put you in touch with someone who has it. And we do that because it can otherwise be hard to, to know. There's no real database of all of this. Um, but through us as conduit, we can put people in touch. And that's how a lot of this works. It's just about making the right connections. And we facilitate that where we can. And the, the, how many um, translators are part of the collective now? There are 10 people in Sedilla. Um, most, but not all of us, based in New York. And do you find that the work that is generated through that network comes from a particular market, or is it truly global? Well, interestingly, um, it's hard to really say what work is generated by Sedilla, in that we're all out there pitching and meeting people. Um, so Sedilla facilitates this, um, but it's very hard to draw a line and say, this was a Sedilla project and this was not. Um, it's more we use the resources of Sedilla to facilitate the different things we do. Um, and it, it has opened doors that otherwise wouldn't have been open to us. But where the work comes from is different for each of us because we're all doing different things and, and seeking out different opportunities. Mm. It's just um, made the road a bit smoother. It's quite a, it's an interesting model to think about in relationship to traditional author-agent publisher relationships. You're sort of, you're doing something a little bit more subversive, collaborative and mutually beneficial rather than chasing individual benefit through that structure. Was that a deliberate choice or is that how it works for you? Um, I don't know if we set out to be subversive, but... Um, at the same time, we did want to be disruptive because the current model wasn't really um, functioning as well as it could have for us, and translation is much neglected. That feels like there isn't a smooth pathway to make translations happen, um, and there wasn't really enough communication around it, so that's what we tried to facilitate. And a lot of it is just visibility. Mm. Um, you know, by... by um, standing together, we became more visible and translation became more visible and so people could come to us um, and talk to us. And do you think that visibility is changing uh, kind of the perceptions around the industry or is that a slow process? I, it's hard to say what comes first because there are also now more and more presses that focus on translation and there are more and more collectives um, shout out to the Starlings Bureau who are around somewhere yes, oh, yeah, excellent um, and various um, regions of America have also got their own collectives. Um, small plug, the blog of Alter, the American Literary Translators Association, is running a monthly series of interviews with different collectives. Um, and I recommend you check it out. The Starling Bureau is the latest to be featured. And what's interesting is that the models are very different. So people are finding different ways to work together and to collaborate. But unquestionably, that does make translation more visible. Mm. And I think publishers and readers are paying attention. How many, um, how many years have you come to London Book Fair? Or how many times have you come to London Book Fair before? Too many, um, <laughs> three, four, maybe. Three, four. Yeah. Have you noticed a kind of a, a kind of a, any sort of change in the in the perception of translation or the presence and visibility of translation over those years, or is that something to be developed? Um, I, I think I do. It does seem more 
visible. It does seem more in the air. Um, I mean, obviously, this literary translation of the fair thing is, is a big um, step forward in terms of visibility. Um, just, you know, the idea that translators exist and are people. Um, <laughs> That, that I, th I think there is something about physical presence yeah. and just staking our ground, the Literary Translation Center um, at, at the back of the fair, yes, but it is a place that exists and having... It's a very vibrant corner, if not Corner, the back. yes. <laughs> yes, I think the periphery is always more interesting than the center anyway. Very true, very true. Uh, if we're thinking about what, uh, what might... You are the inaugural translator of the fair. If you had a kind of a... Um, if you were to anoint your successor and give them a job description, what might that look like next year? What do you think that Give could them happen? a job description? Yeah. Um, yes, well, I was told Apart that... Apart from a crown and, the... a, and a palanquin and a kind of a serenading troop of people everywhere you went in Olympia. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? As the inaugural one, you kind of set the um, tone for what comes next. So I decided to... Um, the best thing I could do for all future translators of the fair was to keep expectations very, very low. Um, and it's, it's funny, a lot of people have asked me what my duties are, and honestly, they are just to exist. Um, because it, it's about translation, translation and translators being visible, um, and being the face of translation, as it were, um, kind of is good, but also um, I'm just a face, and it's about there being someone standing, um, representing the community, but it could be any of us. It's like being the May Queen. <laughs> it's a very good word picture, which I'm now sort of chasing through my, my mind. Um, when, you, when, you, when we think of translators, I think, um, Kind of, or I think in the industry eyes, the translators seem to f too often fulfil a function between the target of the initial book and the target market. Whereas my translation, my experience of translators is that they do many, many things within their community, whether it's mentoring, whether it's teaching, whether it's professional development work, whether it's network and market uh, information. How have you seen the role of translators? changing over recent years are you, are you are you excited about what translators are now doing yes i mean I'd, I'd have to be because that's the only reason to keep doing this um god knows none of us are in this for the money but um that that is i think a growing awareness that translators can make things happen we're not just there passively to be a conduit between one language and another and the, the words don't just pass through us and come out differently and then you get a book at the end. We're part of an ecosystem that um, has a lot going on and we form a lot of these connections. We provide a lot of the context in which these translations are received. I, I think translators are staking a position for ourselves and claiming validity as artists and recognition as artists, which means what we do is part of a coherent practice. We're not just people to, who do one job after another, but what we do is akin to what writers do, mm. um, or what playwrights do, or what poets do. It's, it's creating a body of work, and everything goes within that context. 
I think that we were, there's a, a number of conversations in the writers' communities, different writing communities around trying to change their attitude or the expected attitude of gratitude towards publishers for publishing them and kind of staking a bigger claim as, uh, in the process, you know, the wider kind of ecosystem. Is that something that, that translators, you say and translators aren't in it for the money, but surely that should be there as well and there needs to be discussions about that too. Okay, I should have said we're not just doing it for the money. Um, the money is a motivation, and translators do deserve to be paid for their work. But um, more than that, it's... The word gratitude is difficult because, I mean, yes, we are grateful to be published, and we are grateful for the support of editors and publishers who do a lot for us. But this isn't abject. No. It's not one way... Um, it's about working together, and I think we provide something that no one else can, and we're part of this ecology, but we have a valid place in it. Mm. Um, so we are grateful to the, uh, everyone around us, um, but at the same time, we're not begging for scraps. We're, doing it, we're an important role in this. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a point very well made, and I think that writers are feeling that in different kind of forms too, and challenging some of that kind of one-way street feeling. And yes. perhaps the, one of the main values of the London Book Fair's kind of inaugural translator of the fair is that, that that is very visible now, and the functions of the translator become visible alongside their, their humanity also. Yes, um, it's, it's about um, professionalization. Um, and us being seen as artists, as creative individuals, but also as professionals um, who deserve to be treated as professionals. And it's, it's a job, and it's a job with parameters like any other. Mm. I mean, it's, it's much more than that, but it does need to be seen as a job yeah. um, because that, that gives it a certain seriousness, and we're treated with a certain level of, of respect and professionalism um, as a result. I think it's just really encouraging, first of all, to see London Book Fair appoint a literary translator of the fair. I'm delighted that um, you were that first person to take the role, Jeremy. Um, I think that we're very excited to see what happens in the future with, with the role and that we hope that next year we're able to welcome the second literary translator of the fair back as well and also you. Perhaps we can host a ceremony where you hand a burning dictionary over to the next recipient of the award. Or What or if I just refuse to go? <laughs> Just back it's next all, it's year. all going to be done by holograms and at that point anyway. I'd like to thank him for being that first translator of the fair and helping increase the visibility of literary translation within the wider publishing um, ecology and to thank you also for coming to hear him talk this afternoon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all. Thanks for listening and many thanks to Jeremy, Chris and the LTC. If you have questions or want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus. And Steph, where are you? I am at Steph X McKenna. And the National Centre for Writing is everywhere. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre. You can search for us on Facebook or you can sign up to our newsletter over on our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it does help it to go up the charts and for other people to find it. So many thanks for listening, do keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode when we're going to be talking to the winner of our Room of One's Own Writing Opportunity. Mm -hmm.